Okay, take a seat. Find your seat. Get comfortable. Get your coffee. Katie's got her coffee in the back. She's not even paying attention. She doesn't even know I mentioned her name. I was making fun of Katie Benty back there, but she wasn't paying attention. Good morning. Good morning. There's a uh, event on later today, and um, Ma- <laughs> Mavis, you care? Oh, okay. All right. Okay, listen up. Listen up. I got a couple things for you. Number one, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Jesse, and if we haven't met, I'm part of a wonderful team here. Uh, glad to have you with us. If you are visiting for the first time, uh, or if you're trying to get plugged in, met a couple people in the first gathering uh, who they're, they're just now starting to make this their home church. If that's you in the front pocket in front of you, if you aren't in the front row, congratulations. Uh, you can reach behind you and you can steal one of those if you want. But there's a little pamphlet in there, a little uh, card. Uh, tells you all about who we are and, and, and what we've got going on. We are uh, on, of course, all the social media stuff to inform you of what's happening. We have a newsletter. Uh, you can sign up for that newsletter on our webpage or or you can download our app, and it'll be in the app. And so if you don't have the app yet, make sure uh, you go ahead and take advantage of that resource. And because there is an event coming up uh, this afternoon, Andy Finch, who's part of our church, he's actually one of our deacons, he, um, <clears throat> he informed me they filmed as an alternative to the halftime show. Uh, they, have, <laughs> they have filmed uh, with the Word of Life, which is an organization he works with to get the gospel out. Uh, with some radical snowboarding. I saw a quick little clip just a moment ago. It's going to be a blast. But if you want an alternative uh, to whatever debauchery will be on TV at the halftime show, uh, and you actually want to practice your Christianity, you can, um, yeah, <laughs> you can download that Word of Life or, or get to the Word of Life deal. I have a joke. You know, most of the time the halftime show is trash, if I'm honest. And so great alternative. Uh, would invite you to take advantage of that. And Andy, if you don't know who Andy is, he uh, was a professional snowboarder, uh, snowboarded in the Olympics. He's won X Games. He's well-decorated. Check that out. Uh, And then a couple things for you to keep uh, in the back of your mind. We are going to be doing a Passover feast. We talked about that during the Easter kind of season. Please keep your ears out for that. We want to get as many people in there as possible, but because uh, we do believe, we think it's going to sell out. We're not, we're going to run out of room. So be mindful of that. Uh, on Friday, Marlise threw, along with several volunteers of the church, a wonderful event for our special needs kids, uh, Night to Shine. I, I wasn't able to make it to the event, but saw the pictures and saw the kids dancing, and oh, my heart was just like really sad I wasn't able to be there. But Marlise, thank you so much. Did they have a complete blast? I saw, um, look like what's his name, uh, uh, got, became the, the king. Um, Oh, they all got crowned king, of course. And I bet they were like, I'm a king, you're a king, we're all kings. Super cool. Uh, so that's great. And then I, w- I just wanted to celebrate that. And I want to celebrate, I didn't mention uh, this a couple weeks ago, I intended to. We support Travis and Amber in Mexico, and, and they, are, uh, they help orphanages and widows and things like that in Mexico. They're actually building an orphanage. Uh, we have been supporting them for several years. Most of you know about them. But they had uh, all of their cars basically broke down and they were without a vehicle, and someone in our church, uh, through the graciousness of their heart, donated one of their Suburbans to them, so now they have a vehicle. Uh, And I just am super thankful that our church just practices such great generosity and help, and you can, man, just the things God's doing in our midst, we just, every now and then, we just gotta say, thank you, Jesus, that you're just too good to us. Yeah. Okay. 80 or 90 volunteers. Dang, that's crazy. Thank you guys for that. Yeah. Give yourselves a hand. Huh? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. If you don't have your Bible or you need one, raise your hand. One of these guys will let you borrow one of ours or you can take it if you need one. Uh, We try to give away as many free things here as we possibly can because we think that's how God is, man. He's gracious. Okay. Okay. I wrestled a little bit this week in the text on how I would start this particular message. So let me give you the tag of the message first, the, the, the title that I've uh, used for this particular message this morning. We've got a couple more over here. 
uh, another hand over here, guys. Um, where's my happy ending? There is something about a good story uh, where we all kind of long for a happy ending. I believe it was Tolkien who said it really well, uh, that, that behind every good story, the reason it's a good story is because really underneath the story is a gospel message. He basically would argue that the reason you resonate with a movie or you resonate with a book is because in it is the story of the gospel. Now, not, not all, always out in front like it's Jesus in the gospel, but rather, right, if you think about, like even most of the Marvel movies, right, someone doesn't have powers, uh, and then they get their powers, and then they get tested, and then they fall, uh, and, and, and almost to death, right, they almost die, and then they're resurrected again, and we all celebrate. And Mark... If I'm really honest and upfront with you, Mark doesn't end that way. And so what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm going to go out of order in the text. And, and the reason is, is because if you go to verse 9, just look, well, first of all, go to verse 8. Go to verse 8 of chapter 16. And what we have this morning is the empty tomb. Last week, Brad Beers walked us through the crucifixion, through Jesus' death. Jesus now at this point has been buried. Uh, like I said, I'm going to go out all kinds of out of order. Give me, uh, give me grace. Look at verse 47. I know I told you to go to verse 8, but go to verse 40, uh, 47 of 15. Chapter 15. See, I'm messing with you. I am messing with you. Know your Bible because I will mess you up. Okay. Look at verse 47. Yeah, dude, tell him. Tell him to get here. <laughs> verse 46. <laughs> Go to verse 46. <laughs> and Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking Jesus down, he wrapped Jesus in a linen shroud. He laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, in verse 47, which is our characters this morning, our witnesses of this resurrection, if you will, Mary Magdalene and, the Mary, and Mary of Joseph saw where he was laid. I want you just to take note, first and foremost, that before, Jesus, before they go to the empty tomb, they're watching Joseph of Arimathea, who's part of the Sanhedrin, which is an interesting character to be burying Jesus because he's not a believing Christian in, in, in as far as that we know. I mean, he probably is now at this point. But he's kind of one of the, the last characters we would think would be bearing Jesus. And it appears that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of Joseph, were at a distance watching Jesus being placed in the tomb. And obviously because probably this individual who buried him, Joseph, was part of the Sanhedrin, they probably kept their distance wondering, you know, is this guy going to turn on us? What is he really doing here? And then Jesus is buried... And then if you go to verse 8, as they go and they see that the tomb is empty, again, we'll get to this text here in a moment, but it's important for what I'm about to say. Look at how verse 8 ends. An angel will speak to them that Jesus is not here, and it says this, and they went out after the angel told them to go. They went out and they fled from the tomb. Trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, here's why, why I'm doing this. <clears throat> That's the ending of Mark. It's an abrupt ending. And then most of you, if you are looking at your Bible, you're going, wait a minute. No, it isn't. There's verse 9 and 10 all the way to 20. Why am I leaving that out? Here's why. It's all going to tie in with this idea of happy ending. Verses 9 through 20 are not in the original manuscripts. Now, let me share something with you. This is where I went out of order. I was like, this, is, this has to be handled up front. Verses 9 through 20 were not there originally. They were added later by scribes, and I'll explain to you why, okay? So you should be asking the question, well, why are verses 9 through 20? So first of all, is there anyone, there are translations, so I'll just ask, does anyone have a translation where verses 9 through 20 is not in your Bible? Okay, most of us have it. A few of you don't, okay? Thank you for, uh, what's your translation? What do you, what do you have? I trust you. 
Marlowe. What is it? Holman. Okay. So, so rightfully so, it's, it's in some translations, it's just not there. Now, here's the next question. This will be true for everybody. Who has brackets? Who has brackets or a footnote? Yep, everybody. Wasn't in the original manuscripts. Now, so that might, and I'm appreciative of what Brad Beer said last week because he's setting me up for what I'm about to say. This idea of what we call textual criticism upon the Bible. All of this to say is that the Bible has had more critiques, more criticism, more study than any other historical document in the history of mankind. So before, but when we recognize, when I say 9 through 20 isn't here, I'm going to ease your heart because some of you may be like, wait a minute, can I trust my Bible? Yes, you can trust your Bible. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, when we think of textual criticism, like when I read commentaries, when I started the book of Mark, if you remember, Mark wrote this book, but whose testimony is it? It's Peter's. So when I read a commentary, when I first start opening up and studying a book of the Bible, like up front is like 20 pages, like 20 pages explaining to the reader why the book of Galatians was written by Paul. 20 pages. Now, I don't know if you've ever read some of these books that Paul has written, but they all open up with, hey, I'm Paul, and I'm writing this. But because we care so much about accuracy, so much about the fidelity of Scripture, we ensure those, when I say we, I mean those who are way smarter than me, to make sure that that is actually the author who wrote the book. And there is no book better preserved than Scripture itself. Let me give you a few examples. Some of you who've gone to Bible school will know all this already, and some of you will not. Herodotus's history, as an example, which is basically a manuscript written on, on old ancient traditions and politics, we have eight copies of that. No one denies that it's historical. Eight copies, and the earliest manuscript is 1,300 years after the original. But no one doubts its veracity. No one doubts its historicity. How about Caesar's Gallic Wars? We have 10 copies of that. The earliest is 1,000 years from the original. Homer's Iliad, 643 copies. That's kind of like the max of historical manuscripts that we consider historically accurate and true. Nobody's arguing with those. Nobody's saying that those things shouldn't be trusted. Well, how about the New Testament? You ready for your mind to be blown? 5,000. 5,000 manuscripts, some of which are only 25 to 50 years removed from the original. It blows everything else away. Then you think of the ancient Latin texts, 25,000 copies. The early church fathers, way back when, when they started referencing these scriptures, 32,000 citations. So all that to be said is, you can trust this piece of scripture that you have in your hands. Therein lies the issue with 9. If I can trust it, why is 9 through 20 in here? Well, here's what seems to have occurred. So first of all, what, what seems to have occurred is that early on, the ending didn't jive with the rest of the other Gospels. All of the other Gospels have some kind of commission and some kind of ending and witnessing of the actual resurrection. That's not the case in Mark. It ends right at verse 8. It's abrupt. So the scribes are like, we need to make this jive with the rest of the Gospels. So what they did is they added this ending... And this ending is filled with all kinds of other scripture that's actually already found in other gospels or in the book of Acts. And one way we know that it's added is because the connecting point between verses 8 and 9 is awkward. And then when you start getting in verses 9 through 20, there is language that's used that Mark has not used anywhere else in the gospel. So Mark has what's called a literary style. One of those styles is the word he uses in there, if you remember, right? Immediately. Over and over again, that word appears. It helps us understand this author was connecting all of his points. He's using the same kind of verbiage, so on and so forth. Well, verses 9 through 20, the verbiage is different. There's actually 18, like I said, 18 words that aren't used anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. The vocabulary style, the structure is not consistent with the rest of Mark. Then you've got these other issues in it. it. There seems to be a teaching that says that you are saved through baptism. It's worded awkwardly. You're not saved through baptism. Then there's this idea in verses 9 through 20 that you can handle snakes and you can be bitten and, and you won't die. 
I don't recommend anybody do that. Uh, Maybe that was pulled from Paul, who in Acts was bitten by a viper and he didn't die. But then you also have the drinking of poison. And some would say that that's all metaphorical, but then the rest is supposed to be taken literal. And that's a big problem when you're studying scripture too. You can't have literal and metaphorical all jumbled into one passage because then you, you just can't make sense of it. Okay, so all that to be said, it's in there because somebody said they weren't comfortable with the abrupt stop. Remember the title of the message? Where's my happy ending? It's intended to end this way abruptly, and it's on purpose. Why? Well, in part, have you ever, um, I've done this a few times. When I was in youth ministry, one, <laughs> one of my favorite things to do in youth ministry, if I got a student and I would take them to Reno for a trip, maybe grocery shop, shopping, or have you? I remember I took one, one kid down and uh, he fell asleep on me in the car. So, you know, we're going like 65 85 miles an hour. And, and I noticed he was asleep, and I did one of those hit the brakes and jerk the wheel and scream things, you know? What did he do? Hey! Right? It jolted him awake. That's what the ending of Mark is, right? Immediately, fast, 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 fast. And the ending is to jolt you. The ending is to get you to wake up and to begin to start asking questions. Right? The book of Mark initially was read in a congregation much like this aloud. The entirety of it would have been read. And the ending would have all of a sudden come to this abrupt stop. And everyone would have asked, why did it end that way? And everybody would have began the process of asking questions about Jesus and his resurrection. So with that said, let's get to the witnesses of this resurrection. But before we get to the witnesses of the resurrection, let's talk about the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection cannot be understated. One author says Christianity stands and falls on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. No resurrection, no Christianity. I was reading of one pastor who came Uh, who had a friend who was an atheist. And as he was asking this atheist about why he didn't believe in Jesus, somehow, someway in the conversation, it came up, and the atheist was asked, well, what if the resurrection is true? What would you say if the resurrection was true? And he gave, this is an atheist responding, five things that are true if the resurrection is true. This was his atheistic response to if the resurrection is true. Number one, there is a God. Number two, Jesus is that God. Number three, the Bible's truth. Number four, heaven and hell are real. And number five, Jesus makes the difference whether you go to one or the other. 1 Corinthians 15 says it better. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found, Paul says, if we are preaching the resurrection and it didn't happen, he says, then we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified that God raised Christ from the dead, but he wasn't raised. And he goes on in verse 17 of chapter 15, and if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is futile and you're still trapped in your sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no freedom. He goes on in verse 18 and says this about the dead. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no future. There's no hope for them. That is what is Paul, that's what Paul is saying. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, he says, if, if that's the case, if, if we are worshiping Jesus and he died and he wasn't resurrected, listen to how he ends this particular segment, then we are people to be most pitied. This is Paul's words. No resurrection, and we're pitied. We're fools. We're foolish. Our faith is in vain. We're pretending. It's all ridiculous. And the reality of the resurrection was doubted today and is doubted today and was doubted in Jesus' day. Let's read the text. Are you ready? Would you please stand with me? 15 minutes into the message. And let's read together. Verse 1. 
When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for fear, trembling, and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Lord, we ask this morning, all distractions would be removed. All desire to enter into a restful slumber during the preaching would dissipate. And that above all, even in my weakness, it bright and beautiful here this morning. We trust you for it, and the church said, Amen. You may be seated. Okay. The resurrection in Jesus' day was just as big of a deal as it is today. You, you have your doubters. You have your, those who say, there's just no way. I can't believe in that. Well, there were several. First of all, the text shows us that these women never intended to actually see the resurrected Jesus. We know this because it tells us that they went out and they bought spices. Now, this is interesting because, first of all, Saturday was the Passover. No markets were open. They could not have purchased the spices on Saturday until the evening. Then in the evening, some of the markets would open up for a brief period of trade. That's probably when they purchased these spices. And these spices have a very specific uh, reason for being taken to Jesus, and it's so that his body will no longer smell. The fact the text puts this in there is to let us know that these, these women who at first were standing off watching Joseph bury Jesus, they waited a couple days, and now they come on a Sunday to go see their Savior, to visit him and to love on him, and they believe they're going to anoint his body with these spices. Like I said, the fact that the resurrection is doubted today is nothing new. There have been several theories uh, even in the early first and second centuries to explain away the resurrection. Let me share some of those theories with you. Again, some of you are familiar with them. There is the swoon theory. Yeah, Jesus went through what he went through. I made a big deal of the scourging. Brad made a big deal of the crucifixion. We know that Jesus' heart was stabbed with a spear and blood and water flowed. I don't think he just passed out from the pain. I mean, the cross was intended to be 100% successful in killing the individual on the cross. Then you have what the Jehovah's Witnesses would declare. It's called the spirit theory. This is a direct quote from their watchtower. King Christ Jesus was put to death in the flesh and was resurrected as an invisible spirit creature. No. I like this one, number three, the hallucination theory. This theory is that Jesus, in his 33 years of ministry, developed a psychological ability to hypnotize his disciples to think that when he died, that they all had a common uh, spiritual weird hypnotized effect that he was resurrected from the dead. Super cool. What kind of drugs did they have to take to come up with that one? There's the stolen body theory. The disciples paid off the guards, but the guards would have been killed if that was the case. There's the wrong tomb theory. There's the mistaken identity theory. The women must have mistaken Jesus for the gardener. And then the last one, this is my favorite, the twin theory. That's crazy. <clears throat> the doubt has always been there. And it will continue to be there. But we know that this is a historical fact. We can trust it. And one way we can trust it is by understanding just even the way that the text writes this particular story, the way that God in his Holy Spirit has, has given us the ability to discern 
that this is true. So you, Brad mentioned it. I've mentioned it before. Women were not seen as trustworthy witnesses of anything. Women at this time could not, could not testify in court as a reliable witness. I mean, one, one second century philosopher actually wrote, how can, of this, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of hysterical females? I didn't say it. Allie, I didn't say that. But yet in that tradition, this is not the way you start a new movement. This is not how you get people to believe. Hysterical for sure. But what is happening with these women, with these witnesses? They're going to say goodbye to someone they love. Let's just take Mary Magdalene, for instance. Mary Magdalene is called Mary Magdalene because she's from Magdala. All of us know, because Scripture tells us, that Mary Magdalene, that she, through the power of Christ, had demons cast out of her, multiple demons. What's hidden within her name, which sometimes isn't realized, is because she came from Magdala. Magdala, uh, in the Jewish Talmud, records that Magdala, where she was from, was a town of prostitution. This is a woman who probably sold her body for the pleasure of, for other men as an object. And she was oppressed from these demons. And Jesus came, cast those demons out of her, brought her out of her prostitution, and gave her a new identity and a brand new family. And so she can't help but go visit her Savior. I haven't shared this openly. I did in the first gathering. I will with you. I haven't shared this openly because it's, it's been almost one of those things that's been too private and too hard, but it's been eight or nine years since it happened. Some of you know my, my father who raised me. He used to race these dwarf cars, sometimes in Fernley and other places, and, uh, and he got into a sudden accident in one of his races, and he died. And when someone dies out of the area, I've had to do this with other families. I've done it with my family now. And, you know, they transport the remains. They bring them to the mortuary here. And, and then they ask the question, which is, was all new for me, first time ever having to walk through it, do you want to come and say goodbye to your father? Now, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go see my dad because I knew that whatever I saw was, was no longer there. I knew my dad was a believer, wasn't always a believer when he was younger, but became a believer. I knew that what was in that, what was there, was just a shell. It was, it's like looking at a, if you will, somebody's old dirty clothes. It's not them. But very similarly, like, like there's something about going back and saying goodbye. And I went to go see my father because my mom was adamant that she wanted to say goodbye to my father physically. The man that helped her and provided for her and established her life. When my dad died, my, both my sisters, I think my youngest sister was 11, and, and my oldest sister was 14. I think the 11-year-old sister's here today with the baby. Where are you? Is she in the cry room? She's in the cry room with a baby, which is pretty cool. <clears throat> and my mom, as she went into that room with me to support her, what I experienced in that moment is almost, I almost don't have the words to communicate it. She threw her body on his. She stroked his hair. She kissed him. It was one of the most difficult moments of my life. And I share that so that the emotion of that moment, the emotion of this moment for these women rests upon you. These women are going to the one who has provided for them, to the one who has elevated their status as women, as actual human beings to be trusted with the gospel news and the gospel message. Take for a moment in this passage, you have a prostitute becoming one of the first proclaimers of the gospel. How can one not go back in fact, the text tells us the sun had risen. This is early. This is probably somewhere between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know that you can't sleep. 
My wife and I traveled down to Southern California to attend a wedding for a girl who, who we raised up in our youth group. We were going to go celebrate and be a part of this wedding. And that night, I got the phone call from my mom that my dad had passed. We drove down there one day, had to turn around, drive back the next. I didn't sleep that night. To be honest with you, I don't even know when I actually began to sleep again. And I'm sure that my mother, if she were here to tell you that story as well, she would share the same. It was difficult. It was hard. And it's difficult and hard for these women. They are not able to sleep. They cannot believe that this one who was supposed to free them completely, the promise of heaven and the promise of continued relationship with God, now lies within this grave. So they go and they buy these spices so that they can spend one last time with Jesus. And as these witnesses, these women start marching towards the empty tomb, they don't know that it's empty, and one of them has an epiphany. What about the stone? For it was, it says, very large. Here's what you need to understand, that when someone was buried uh, like they were in Jesus' day, first of all, it became very common for tombs to be raided. People would steal from the tombs. So there were actual laws set up to, to prosecute those who would steal from the tombs. But then a part of the solution to keep tombs from being raided were these large stones. And if you were poor, if you were just a normal kind of individual and you were placed within the cleft of these rocks, they would create basically a slope with a channel. And in the channel, the stone would fit. And they'd have that there with one little lever, basically. Uh, and, and if you were a common person, that stone would weigh around 500 pounds. You'd lever it, and it would roll down, and it would fit right in front of that hole, and it would be almost nearly impossible to roll that 500-pound stone back. But Jesus wasn't buried in a common tomb. He was buried in a wealthy man's tomb. Those stones were between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds. So <laughs> these girls at least know one thing. We haven't been working out hard enough to do this. We haven't done enough CrossFit to move this rock. And as they come to this place, it tells us that as they come upon the tomb, the, the, the stone has been rolled away. And inside of the tomb, it tells us in this text, because the way that Mark writes, it's short and it's quick. He just says, there's a young man dressed in white. Now, just so you know, the other gospels tell us there were two. But in typical fashion of Mark, he's only focusing on the one that's actually speaking, which happens to be this young man dressed in white. The other one is in white as well. And just so we're all really, really clear, even in Jesus' day, just as it is today, it's a little abnormal to be walking around in all white. Unless you're getting married, yeah? So this is not common. What are these men? Everyone will tell you. Every theologian knows. These are angels in this tomb. And Jesus speaks to them, and the first thing the text tells us is, if you take a look, what does it say? Uh, and entering the tomb, oh, where's the word, uh, where is it? Duh, 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 duh. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw the young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were what? Okay, this is an interesting word. Why is this word so important? It's the same kind of wording for Jesus and the heaviness he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an alarming point. When Jesus is in the garden and he's feeling the weight of, of what's going to happen and also the beauty of what's going to happen, it weighs upon him. And likewise, the women see this empty tomb and they're alarmed. They are overtaken. They are overcome. They are greatly distressed. They are greatly troubled by what is occurring. And again, in typical fashion, this is how you know when you're speaking to a real angel, they tell you, it's going to be okay. Don't be alarmed. He's telling them not to fear. There has to be a teaching point in here that I think must be emphasized. What are the things in your life that alarm you? What are the things that give you fear? You know, whenever I do these kind of studies each week, I'm asking the question, what is it that God wants to do inside of me and to me? And, and I had to realize and be honest that, that even though I sometimes come across to others as if I have no insecurities of fear, I have great insecurities in fear. I'm shaking in my boots right now, whether you know it or not. Fear of failure. I have fear every week that I will not prepare. Sometimes I fear I'll over-prepare, which that comes across in a whole other awkward way. 
fear that I won't live up to your expectations. I have fear at times that the church won't do well. I have fear that people won't come, and you still come. It's just when it's snowing, you don't come. I fear that my kids will not choose to follow the God of wonders. That because my kids didn't grow up in a home like I did, they don't have the contrast of what it is to live in a house of wickedness and to be free to now live in a house of freedom. Imperfect for sure. I mean, shoot, all the way back in Isaiah, it still declares, fear not. This is the words of the Lord. This is essentially what the angel is saying to these women. Fear not. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There is no other place in my life so far up to this moment that I have not clearly seen God carrying me through my pain and my struggle and my hurt as he did when my father passed away. If it wasn't for the grace of God, man, if it wasn't for the community of believers, I mean, for crying out loud, if it wasn't for you, I don't know if I would be standing here. A lot of you don't know this, but when my father died, I was, I was going through the transition phase here at the church and the group of elders were asking, are you the right lead guy after Pastor Wayne? Are we sure we want to keep you around? There were even leaders in that meeting who specifically said, well, I won't work with him if he becomes the lead guy. Fear. But then you have to love the wording of this angel that comes next. Don't be alarmed. Do not be overtaken with fear, church. I think this is important in our culture because, you know, if you happen to watch the halftime show, don't be alarmed at what you see. It's what a sinful world that is anti-Christ does. Don't, don't be alarmed because you have the risen Jesus with you. Don't go, I can't believe the culture. I can't believe the people. I can't believe the president. I can't believe the politics. Really? You might need to study the real true depravity of sin and the true effects of sin then. Because no one is capable of truly doing anything righteous or good unless they've been saved out of the wicked snare that the world is putting forth to you every single day. But then what does the angel say? I love it. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus. Historical fact. He's from Nazareth. Historical fact. He's crucified. Historical fact. He's risen. Historical fact. He's not here. I love it because he's saying to them, why are you seeking Jesus where he is not? And can't we be guilty of the same thing? Can we be guilty of seeking Jesus on Instagram, seeking Jesus on our Facebook or our Twitter or on television or on, uh, on, on, on whatever digital device you have, seeking happiness, seeking joy, seeking salvation, seeking peace, seeking it in an individual, seeking it in our marriage, trying to seek it in our kids to live vicariously through them? Why are you seeking Jesus here or as one place in Scripture says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not found in the tomb. Jesus is not found in the things that bring death. Jesus is found in every area that brings life. He's not here. So here's what you need to do, ladies. What does he tell them? Go. But go, he's not here, go. He even tells them, before we get there though, look, notice what he says here. See the place where they laid him. This again shows us the calmness and the reality of this resurrection. Just so you're aware, the other gospels tell us that literally where Jesus laid, that Jesus actually took the cloth that was his, around his body and he had it here nice and neat and folded and then the shroud that covered his head was nice and neat and folded because when Jesus got out of his bed, he made his bed. And he cleaned up after himself. It's just a little takeaway for the guys in the room. Yeah? It's okay to clean up after yourself. And so Jesus sets that. I can just, I can picture him, man, like he's resurrected, he's alive. And nowhere in scripture does it show us that moment where the Holy Spirit does it. But all the evidence is there. There's no way he could have got out on his own. Who rolled the tomb away? It was the Spirit of God that rolled the tomb away. 
That stone was removed because of the Spirit of God. The women couldn't do it. The Roman soldiers couldn't do it. Only God could do it. And he tells the ladies, now it's your turn to go and preach this gospel. If you will, what he's essentially saying is, you go preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit will roll the stone away in people's hearts so that it will be open to new life. I mean, you know why the stone was rolled away, don't you? I mean, this answer is simple. It wasn't to let Jesus out. You know that, yeah? You think Jesus needed the stone to be rolled away? No, we know this because in his resurrected body, right, the disciples are having this conversation and they're in a locked room. Why are they in a locked room? Because they believe they're next and they're talking about the resurrection. And you've got a guy by the name of Thomas who got the wonderful nickname Doubting Thomas. And Thomas is in the room, and he's going, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but uh, I'm not going to believe until I can stick my fingers into the holes of his hands and his side. And while the room's locked, who pops up in the room? Resurrected Jesus. Hey, heard you guys were talking about me. Oh, hey, Thomas, how you doing? Want to see these? And he believes. But take note, Jesus has a physical body you can touch, and yet he's able to go through these walls and enter into the room through some kind of spiritual manifestation that we're not even fully aware of. Do you think the stone needed to be rolled away to let Jesus out? No, it needed to be rolled away to let the women in. So the women could see. Jesus is not here. You cannot find him amongst the dead. Jesus is alive. Oh, he actually went before us because he's a great leader. Where? To Galilee. So go to Galilee, ladies, and go preach. Go preach the good news, and he says, and you'll see me again. Next teaching point. If you want to see Jesus, there's no better way to see him than to share your faith with other people. The church, I want to see a physical Jesus. I do too, I can't wait. But the next best thing is to see Jesus and the way he uses you as an imperfect vessel to reach people for him. Will you join him in that? Because the text also tells us something a little different. Who are they to go to first? Those who abandoned him. The ones who get the message first, the one that, see, God is inviting them to know the one they've already known. And go back to the ones who've taken off and, oh, specifically, go back to Peter and let Peter know I'm alive. Could you imagine what Peter would have thought of for the first time hearing this? You remember earlier in the text a few passages ago, we saw Peter deny Jesus how many times? Thrice. And on the third time, the text literally tells us Jesus made eye contact with Peter and Peter hangs his head and he leaves filled with shame and guilt. John tells us he returns back to fishing. He gives up his Christianity to a certain degree because the Savior's dead. And now these women come back and imagine what his ears would have heard and what his heart would have felt. Hey, Jesus told me to come to you first and to let you know he still loves you. Isn't that good news? For them to hear this for the first time? I think it's interesting to note the angel doesn't direct the women to a mystical experience. He doesn't direct them to scientific empirical data. No, he directs them specifically to Jesus who's already ahead of them in Galilee. And that is the way of Christians. We point people to the person of Jesus Christ, to that continual message that's carried his people century after century, his death, his life, his resurrection, his Holy Spirit given into our hearts. When Jesus died and he was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven, he gave the church the most wonderful gift he could give the church, and that's the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, Scripture specifically says that that same power, which is the Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, exists inside of you. Don't you think it's time for us to live in a culture without being baffled, without being dismayed? Because in us is a resurrecting, life-giving, sin-forgiving spirit. Oh, hallelujah. 
So where is this Jesus? <laughs> Man, it's easy for us to miss him, isn't it? But I want to encourage you, church, look for Jesus in the darkest, bleakest, earliest parts of the morning, the latest parts of the evening, the hardest parts of your trial. Look for Jesus because he's right there. I've walked with families as they've lost husbands, children, loved ones. Those who have a belief in Christ, there is a celebration that is undeniable. I've been part of memorial services. Brad Beers did one not that long ago for an older gal who passed away. And man, that room was filled with rejoicing. It was filled with thanksgiving. It was filled with lightheartedness. It was filled with laughter. And I have been part of memorial services where Jesus was not in the picture. And it is filled with alcoholism. And it is filled with addiction. And it is filled with depression. I'm telling you as an eyewitness, the contrast is stark. We have this message, this spirit in us. And so we're now invited, like these ladies, it's an invitation to participation. Jesus is inviting these women into the process, into the gospel proclamation. My friends, you, you can't help but, but see this. When it ends abruptly like this, it's ending because it's saying, who, who's going to continue the story? And to be honest with you, I think that Mark has been setting us up to end at verse 8 all the way from the beginning. If you don't believe me, just go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And what does it say in that particular place in Mark 1, verse 1? This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 1 states, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. And my friends, I believe we're still just in the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not near the end. It is not going to come to some kind of complacency. Jesus is going to continue to build his church and to reach people with or without you. And this is an invitation that you can be a part of that miraculous work, that your joy would be increased. Nothing brings me more joy than seeing people do one of two things. One, those who make radical proclamations anew for Jesus Christ. Oh, we had a gal here not that long ago just recently become a convert, and, and she was confused that maybe she could worship Jesus and someone else as well. And some of you remember, she made a particular statement on a, on a baptism day about how she worshiped that particular entity and Jesus. You know how Jesus works? You know what's really cool? I don't want to embarrass this individual because it's not really totally my story to tell. She went home and destroyed her Buddhist shrine. You know what didn't need to happen? Didn't need to manipulate her. Didn't need to wag the finger. Just like Mary Magdalene. Come on into relationship. And slowly but surely what God does is he moves upon the people's hearts to crush the stones that are keeping us from entering into the empty tomb. And we had people in our church for the first time crushing their old idols. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of seeing someone like that come to Jesus Christ? Don't you want to be a part of a church where people like that are continually coming to Jesus Christ? Don't you want to be part of something where, where sinners are coming and finding forgiveness and healing like Mary Magdalene did? Don't you want to invite people into the empty tomb that they could see that Jesus is not resurrected, that he is resurrected? I mean, don't you want to be a part of that life-giving thing? I do. And then the second part is when those of us who are already saved enter into new plateaus with Christ and we recognize that, that we've all got certain sins in our life that God needs to deal with and he wants to mortify and he wants to get rid of. God wants to purge things out of you this morning. That's the part of Christianity not everybody likes and that's because they don't get the gospel. Is it okay for God to have an invitation into your life to say no to certain things? There's another individual here this morning. Literally started coming to church because he said, I just got tired of sitting on my couch watching TV. So I decided to come to church. And they've been coming every week for like the last year, year and a half. Because they recognize that Jesus is not found on boob tube. He's found amongst believers and he's found amongst the proclamation of his word. We should have expected this. 
And he tells us this promise. Go and tell, and you will see. Go and tell, and you will see. And that's my hope for us this morning. This abrupt stop may not seem like a happy ending, but at the end of a service, everyone would have asked the question, well, what happened with these women? I mean, it seems to me in verse 8 like the women failed. That is the way it's supposed to read. So that way the pastor can say to those women, the preacher can say, Jesus can say, I can say to you this morning, Jesus overcomes your failure. It ends this way so that we can see that the gospel is not dependent upon these women and it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And the greatest thing the church can do is yield to the power of the Spirit of God. And say, God, use me in my imperfection. And that's what my hope is for us this morning, that we would leave here this morning and say, I'm imperfect. I am not powerful. I am not well put together in every way. I am not mistake-free. But I know he's not in that tomb. And I know the one who used me anyways. And I know the one who loved me no matter what. And I know the one who's going to give me a new identity. In fact, after this particular sermon series, we're going to do some topical stuff on service because that's a big deal. And then we're going right into the book of Ephesians because I want to ensure that all of us have, including myself, their identity rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in culture, not in the world, not the opinions of people, but from the scriptural Jesus. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat> and let's pray together as a group and... Um, I'm going um, to do something a little different. Hey, Zach, would you be willing to just pray over us and close us in prayer? And I know you got your baby in your hands, so don't make, don't, don't make go deaf. <laughs> Thanks, man. Let's sing. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. we could ever breathe Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Oh, we live for you.